Well, hey, it is good to see everyone here online. Uh, thank you for being part of this first Wednesday. So I'm excited about tonight. The topic for tonight, as you know, is why emotions matter. We were talking about emotions and why they matter. Uh, and a little bit of backdrop behind, uh, as Jim and I were kind of processing for the topic for tonight, a lot of it was just going, man, this has been an emotionally turbulent year. I know as we kind of take stock of just this last year as a whole, there were a lot of the unexpected things for all of us, uh, hitting a global pandemic, knowing that many of us, I've talked with many of you who have encountered a real sense of sadness this year. Uh, there's been loss, at times the loss of loved ones, uh, at times the loss of a sense of rhythm and stability and just sort of our usual norms. Uh, others have expressed just kind of fear, like where there's been global pandemic and the sense of things kind of unraveling around us and questions about what does that mean for the future? Some in very personal ways, loss of jobs, loss of businesses, and what does this mean for the future? Others is, you know, grappling with anger. Uh, obviously, we're in, in the middle of a year where there's been increasing polarization and hostility in the culture and just uh, socially in our society at large, there's been a lot of anger. And then also just for some who've been upended as far as rhythms go, being at home a lot more with roommates or a spouse and uh, just learning how to navigate anger there. And I think we found that often a lot of us have kind of a complicated relationship with our emotions, not quite sure knowing what exactly to do with them. There are some of us who are maybe more, I uh, think of ourselves kind of rational, like on oh, my emotions, I, I, I don't want to be emotional. I'm going to ignore those kind of stuff and pretend they're not there. Or others who maybe often feel like overwhelmed by their emotions and kind of driven by them. And one of our convictions is that God has given us our emotions. They're not, um, a bad thing whatever like God has created us he's created our bodies he's given us our emotions and we want to ask tonight why has God given us our emotions and how do we discern and use them wisely so the subtitle for tonight why emotions matter how to process fear anger sadness and other God-given signals uh, looking at these as God-given gifts and asking how do we use them well and I am so excited as far as the best person I could ever imagine or dream was Jim and I were talking, man, who do we want to come here and teach us and help guide us in this conversation? Tristan Collins is here. So clap emoji for all you Yes, There we go. Uh, Tristan, uh, just to introduce Tristan a bit. Uh, Tristan's amazing. So I got to say, um, first off, uh, Tristan has written an amazing book. I've bought like multiple, multiple copies of these and given them to friends, different people who are strong with stuff. Uh, Jim and I have both read it and both just loved it. I found it a really helpful resource. Uh, so the title, Why Emotions Matter, Recognize Your Body Signals, Grow in Emotional Intelligence, Discovered and Embodied and Embodied Spirituality. Uh, she co-wrote this with her husband, John Collins. And a uh, great resource. Uh, Tristan, you are a professional counselor and a licensed counselor and a coach. Um, when I was uh, back, back in Portland before we moved, one of my best friends, um, how does summer Ben Thomas, like he ran a, a, a ministry that was constantly referring people and helping people get connected to uh, legit people who love Jesus, but legit counseling and professional services. And Tristan was like the top one. He was always, oh my gosh, Tristan's so amazing. And Tristan and her husband, John, are both friends from back home as well. And so, uh, man, I, it's really cool getting the chance to, to reconnect here. And so glad that your gifts get to be a part of what is here. But even if I didn't know you personally, this would have been like our dream speaker for tonight. Because, Tristan, you are a wise and trusted guide to help us navigate the world of our emotions. And so, welcome. Well, thank you, Josh. It's way too sweet. 
I do enjoy collecting information that's helpful for people. So I kind of see myself more as a facilitator <laughs> of information than um, being this wise person, but hopefully <laughs> learning things along the way. Cool. Well, I think you're wise, so hey. <laughs> awesome. Well, for tonight, to kind of get the ball rolling and kind of getting us jumping in, uh, my first question is, uh, Tristan, man, if you could help us just how should we think about our emotions? I think often, like I said, we often don't know what to do with them. Uh, some of us avoid them. We can tend to think of ourselves as stoic or rational and man, emotions are kind of a distraction. Uh, others of us are really driven by them, uh, can maybe feel overwhelmed by them or impulsive at times. Uh, you use the image of emotions as dashboard signals on a car and uh, like they're, they're trying to sell, tell us something. And I, I'm curious, I found that really helpful. And could you talk to us about that? Why has God given us our emotions and um, how does that help us know how we can best approach them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do think it's helpful to kind of understand, you know, our personality and kind of where we come from as far as how we deal with emotions. Um, some of you might be familiar with the Myers-Briggs. That was really popular um, back when I was in college. And um, I'm definitely more of a feeler. My husband's more of a thinker. And then now what's popular is the Enneagram. And so uh, I would probably lean more towards two, which would be in the heart center. And my husband, John, is definitely in with more of the head center, which would be a five. Um, so I do think our personalities um, affect the way that we um, view emotions and deal with our emotions. And then um, as far as the dashboard metaphor, so I just, as I get older, I just realize how amazing our bodies are. And um, yeah, the analogy I think that I came up with that I don't think does it complete justice is thinking about how um, on the dashboard of our car, we have all this information just at a glance. You can look at it and you can see a summary of the things that are going on in your car and outside of your car. And even though our bodies are so much more complex and amazing um, than a car, um, emotions are kind of similar in that way in that it gives us information. And so um, the value of emotions is that it's just a shorthand way to kind of be aware of what's going on inside of you or what might be going on around you. And when we don't listen or don't pay attention to our emotions, it's kind of like just ignoring all the signals on the dashboard of your car. And so um, when you think about it that way, um, I was thinking of just maybe three examples of what it can look like, um, how people deal with the dashboard and, the, and our emotions um, with our body. And so it'd be kind of like for some people, let's say that in your car, your oil light goes on. And so I've noticed some people will notice that and they'll say, you know, well, if I acknowledge that my oil tank is low, it's a sign of weakness. And um, so I think that's kind of similar in the way we approach emotions, like the dashboard light comes on a sadness and we see it as, oh, this is, a, this is something bad about myself. Um, or let's say that your gas is getting low and it would be like you getting angry at your car because you think it's just hindering you from being more successful. If I only didn't have to fill up my gas tank, 
then I would just have so much more time in my life and I'd be a lot more successful. And I think that's a similar thing when, you know, we're tired or um, let's say with um, any of the, you know, difficult feelings that we have, it, it's telling us to pay attention and it might take away our attention from other things and we can get frustrated about that. Um, but it's like getting frustrated about needing to pay attention to your, your needs of your car. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the last one I was thinking about is just, um, in general, I think it's easy for us to compare. And so, you know, it would be like, you know, looking at somebody else's car and saying, you know, they don't, they don't need to, um, they don't need to stop and get gas right now. What's, what's wrong with me that I need to fill up my gas tank. And so when we're looking outside of ourselves, um, looking at somebody else's, you know, body or, you know, in this analogy, a car, um, it can actually hinder us from just noticing what reality we have within ourselves and, and dealing with that reality. So that's kind of some of the thoughts that I had about um, the dashboard. That's awesome. So uh, these dashboard signals, uh, one of the things that that just makes me think of is the reality of like God creating our bodies. Like God has made us not just as souls, but as bodies. And I think if we get really get into kind of the biblical story, what we see is you don't just have a body, you are a body, like they're integral to our personhood. I think in Genesis one and Genesis two, God creating humanity, the image of God, he made us. And it's referring there to a lot of emphasis on the physical creation. And then Genesis two, God forming our bodies from the dust with care, with intentionality, with all that. And, and so it's helpful for me, the way you're describing emotions as a part of our body that they're actually something that god's given us they're not uh, kind of a distraction uh, but something god's given us could you maybe run through so if, if emotions are like a signal they're kind of a dashboard signal of like hey there's something going on within me what are they signals of uh, we're going to get specifically into fear and anger and sadness tonight but could you give us kind of an overview of you yeah how you approach what are each of kind of the primary emotions telling us or signaling us uh, well, I think one thing that's challenging is that, um, you know, with a car, <laughs> it's a lot easier to be like, oh, my gas, my gas lights on, I need gas. Um, and I think what's difficult with emotions is that it's, it's less of a like a clean um, line about the information. And so um, we've kind of made some like general buckets to think about when you're dealing with certain feelings. And so really, I think the best stance to, to take is curiosity, um, to really just look into, you know, that there's a reason that your body's trying to communicate something to you and just having the posture of curiosity rather than avoidance or frustration towards that, um, that signal. And um, I think, you know, tonight we'll kind of talk about sadness and fear and anger but I think um, uh, this woman who studies um, emotions, um, Lisa Barrett Fieldman, if you wanted to look into more the technical biological uh, role of emotion, she talks about how, um, you know, there's so many emotions and the more um, specific we can be about those emotions, um, the higher emotional intelligence we usually reflect. And so, yeah, this is kind of the, we paint like, these are like the primary colors, I guess, 
is kind of the way that we painted these different emotions. And the amazing thing is that there's like a plethora of mixtures that you can get from it. And so, yeah, I don't know if that answered that question, but. That's great, yeah, that's great. Well, uh, let's get into a specific, so let's start with fear. Uh, you know, we talked about jumping in on the, the emotion of fear. And this year, I think fear has been a big emotion. Many people I've talked to have expressed just the sense of uh, in the midst of a, a pandemic and in so many ways, it's felt like things, it can feel at times for some, a sense of like things are unraveling around us, you know? That could be on personal levels with like a job loss or just rhythms upended. That could be on societal level. Like we're obviously we're in the middle of literally in the middle of kind of an election right now with kind of a polarized culture. Uh, but even like a pandemic, just going like, man, is this the new norm? For how long is this going to take place? And so fear seems to be um, one emotion that's been significant this year. And I'm curious if you could just talk to us a bit about, um, yeah, any thoughts on what is fear trying to tell us? What's the signal, and then how do we approach it wisely? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things that might be helpful to notice in my background is that I work with adults and um, a lot of my training is in helping people process trauma and abuse. And so dealing with fear is a common and, and anxiety in general is a common um, emotion when you've experienced past trauma and past abuse. Um, and so fear is a wonderful way for our bodies to signal to us to know if, that we're in danger. And so that's kind of its positive role. And um, that's really easy when um, there's a bear attacking you, right? And um, the amazing thing about our body is that it reacts faster than we're consciously aware of. And so if a bear's attacking you, you don't have time to analyze the bear and think, is that a bear over there? I'm not really sure. Um, your body will already just start pumping adrenaline. It's like something dark, scary, threatening, and it'll get that adrenaline going and you can just bolt. Um, so that's a wonderful thing when you have a threat, an impending threat, like, like in danger. Um, but what can be so difficult is that our bodies have a hard time sometimes distinguishing what is an actual present threat versus what's an imagined threat and our bodies will react in the exact same way. And so, you know, you realize this when um, you think about um, just an imaginary scenario that isn't necessarily real, but you're picturing like a future scenario where you don't have food or you don't have shelter and that isn't necessarily your present threat, but you can imagine that and create that same um, sensation in your body. And so, Evaluating our thoughts is an important part of emotional health or mental health. And one of the concepts that I think is really helpful comes from, it's called acceptance and commitment therapy. And the concept that they have is called clean pain and dirty pain. And clean pain is just a response of something happening to you. So let's say you stubbed your toe that clean pain would be your, your response to that, your toe being hurt. And um, while dirty pain is the thoughts that you have that can increase your suffering. So let's say you stub your toe and you're, you're not just saying, ow, that hurts, but now you start saying, ugh, I can't believe I'm so stupid that I stubbed my toe. Um, or, you know, why did I do that? That was, um, you know, just, that was my fault. 
Um, so dirty pain is, again, thoughts that we tell ourselves that increase suffering. And so part of therapy is nice trying to identify, you know, what is clean pain and what is dirty pain. And cognitive behavioral therapy has a list, if you wanted to look into that, of just different types of what they call thinking errors or cognitive distortions. Um, Christians might reframe that as like lies, um, but it's a list of just different thoughts that can increase our suffering. And so just two examples would be, uh, one would be catastrophizing, which is thinking about the worst case scenario. Um, and that when we're in an anxious, anxious um, bodily state, it's easy to let our mind start thinking of the worst case scenario instead of just focusing on the present moment. And then another thing, um, an example of a thinking error would be fortune telling, where you're trying to predict the future. And I'm sure a lot of us are being tempted into that right now with election. Um, we'll talk more about this um, with anger. Um, but one more thing that's important is that um, with the dashboard, um, with our car, it, it can be a little bit easier to identify problems. Um, one thing that adds complications to identifying what's triggering our, our emotions is if we have unresolved trauma. And so um, one of the brain theories out there right now is that unresolved trauma is due to uh, dysfunction in our hippocampus. And the hippocampus is, is the part of your brain that is, um, it's like an administrator or organizer of memories. And so the role of the hippocampus is to take short-term memories and file it as like a long-term memory. And when those memories aren't filed properly, we can experience symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and your body will respond to a present scenario, um, even though it's, being, it's really being triggered from a past event. And so uh, a couple examples of that would be, let's say that you're uh, a war veteran and you're walking and a car door slams and you're ducking for cover. Um, as if a bomb goes off. So you're responding, your body is responding to a past unresolved trauma uh, with that car door slamming. So again, because our bodies react faster than our, our cognitive brain, our, um, our awareness, um, it can come become a problem if, our, if, those, uh, if that trauma hasn't been um, filed properly. And then um, another example would be, let's say that you're a sexual abuse survivor um, and you are in a very safe um, relationship and yet you notice that you still have anxiety um, as if you know, that trauma is gonna happen with your partner. And so these are some examples of how um, it can cause confusion in our dashboard. Um, so yeah. I'd, yeah. That's super helpful, man. Even just to share two, two examples that come to mind from me earlier this season, kind of before we did our social media fast, right? But we we're earlier in the season talking with uh, two friends and one friend had grown up in, uh, both were describing, man, I just feel really anxious and fearful right now, like online world, you know, like I feel really anxious to say anything or to mm -hmm. put myself out there or whatever. And uh, one person had grown up in an abusive household and kind of drilled back like, oh man, like there was the realization they felt like God had kind of revealed them like, 
Simmons is coming out. I grew up in a context where I was walking on eggshells of not wanting to set the bear off, you know, like set, yeah. set the arm going. And it was finding that same response triggered in what felt like kind of this hostile, unscared, you don't want to say the wrong thing and wake up the monster kind of thing. Uh, another person who had experienced more abandonment, kind of being left, left that kind of thing and going like, I don't want to say anything that would cause people to walk away, you know, but it was interesting just the awareness of how much our histories have shaped us today. And in, in those realities, like two people going, man, God tapping into what was underneath that fear was a part of helping the healing process of, yeah. What would you say, is there, what, what's a danger if we don't pay attention to those things and we just kind of like, ah, who cares? You know, not just my example, the stuff you mentioned as well, like where it could be a sign of past abuse or past big T trauma or little T trauma. What, uh, what are we missing out on if we just kind of shut that down? Yeah. Well, I think ultimately we're missing out on freedom and emotional connection, right? Because um, we are kind of stuck in, in, in the past and, or at least the physiological responses from the past. And so um, I think what's really sad is just missing out on being able to be free from that. And also, I think um, what's tragic also is that we can actually, through our old responses, recreate the trauma that we experienced in the past. So when you haven't processed old trauma, let's say that you haven't processed um, the, the abuse that you experienced, you can be drawn back into other abusive relationships because it hasn't been um, identified and processed and healed. Um, yeah, so I think there's that on the abuse spectrum. And then I think, um, not necessarily, so there's like big T traumas, which would be things like abuse and natural disasters. Um, but there's also in, in the trauma field, they call them small, little, small T traumas or little T traumas. And little T traumas are things that everyone experiences like rejection or, um, feeling lonely. And what they found is that the accumulation of small T traumas can have just as big of an impact as a big T trauma. And so, um, you know, I think that happens in just relationships where maybe there, you, neither one of you have necessarily a big T trauma in your past, um, but you're playing out the same um, dynamics of your, your family of origin. And so, mm. um, yeah, I think um, there, there's that dynamic. I find that really helpful because I think of like, my grandfather, you know, he was like, you know, he did three tours in Vietnam. He came back, like lost a whole bunch of his people that he, he was there with, that, like, you know, died in the war and came back. And, and I just thought of, man, big T trauma, you know, like trauma. But then sometimes I know when people would, the language of PTSD or trauma become more popular, I think for some of us, it would feel like, oh, well, that, but that's not like being in war, you know, like that, that kind of thing. But to hear you not only distinguish the two, but I think sometimes we can maybe overly minimize the little t traumas, like the long-term impact when there's a whole bunch of them, you know, like that's helpful to hear. Mm -hmm. I hear you say, right, that like uh, the accumulation of little t traumas extended, mm -hmm. like where it keeps happening, you know, can actually be as significant in someone's life as like the big t trauma. Would you, would you say like, uh, I, I think I, I heard you mention once more of a conversation about like this year, like even how 2020 for many people has had, probably for some like, um, 
a lot of little T traumas that <laughs> have just kind of been ongoing. Can you talk about that? Just kind of what you're seeing, even in your own circles and spheres of relationship, people you work with, just has this year had a particular kind of impact on folks that you work with? That you think about? Yeah, I, I think, um, well, just even thinking about like historically, that when we experience traumatic events, like let's say um, I went to uh, New Orleans, New Orleans after the, um, the when they had, what was it? Yeah. The hurricane. hurricane. And, yeah. yeah, and that dam broke. Um, and um, what they found was that a lot of people who were having um, symptoms of post-traumatic stress were people that have a history of trauma. And so what we found is that trauma tends to trigger old trauma. And so um, just being aware of that can be really helpful. Um, uh, but as far as like for this year, um, I, think, um, I think it's been difficult for everybody um, just because it's triggered all this uncertainty. And one of the things that, um, just because you do experience trauma doesn't necessarily mean that you're gonna develop PTSD. Um, but one of the things that they found is that um, when you experience an event, you tend to do fight, flee, or freeze. And uh, one of the things they found is that people who tend to freeze are the ones that tend to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. And so being able to have action and agency is really helpful for being able to process trauma. And so I think how much agency you feel in your life can really impact how you're taking in um, events that you can't control, if that makes sense. Definitely, that's great. Well, uh, obviously we're just kind of giving the tip of the iceberg here as it relates to fear, but I'm curious before we kind of land the plane on this one, and then we're gonna break out and go to some other emotions in a minute. Um, but could you give us, are there some practices or activities or things that uh, people have found helpful or research has shown significant in dealing with fear and mm -hmm. anxiety? That yes, definitely. Um, well, I think one thing to just let people know is if you do have a history of um, trauma and you're thinking that it is um, still affecting you today, then I would definitely recommend seeing a therapist who has specialized training in trauma processing, um, the, tool, the tools or the frameworks that I found that have been really helpful for processing past trauma would be, it's called EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, and um, lifespan integration is another one, and somatic experiencing. So those would be um, two different, or three different um, trainings that can be helpful or that are tools that therapists have. Um, Another practical thing, I think just in general for all of us, is uh, this research that comes from um, James Pennebaker, and he wrote a book, uh, a couple of books, um, but he did some research, he's from Texas, I believe, and he found that in his research that writing about trauma can decrease your physical illness by 50%. And um, so what I found is there's, there's something really different about just ruminating in your head about, you know, why you're feeling what you're feeling and thinking all these things versus writing it down. There's something about getting it out of your head and physically writing it, handwriting it down. It's really helpful. Um, another thing that he found in his research is writing out 
your deepest thoughts and feelings for 15 to 20 minutes a day. Um, so writing about your loss. Um, he found that um, people who did this practice increase their immune function, which is pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, there's something powerful about um, getting it out of our head and just writing it down. That's really helpful. That's good. Uh, hey, maybe one last, uh, one last question here before we, we go to breakout. Uh, so you, you mentioned earlier some of the, you know, thinking distortions, kind of distortions, or in, in Christian terminology, sometimes we might call them lies, you know, lies from the enemy or false thoughts. Um, and we also see this theme in scripture of like, uh, you know, like, do not fear or fear not for I go with you. I wonder if sometimes we have kind of this negative reaction because it feels like, well, I'm, I'm not supposed to fear. Could you maybe just speak briefly to what do you see going on uh, kind of biblically, like the, the, you know, God's telling us fear not, don't fear, and yet the reality of fear being a, a bodily emotional response we have. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the relationship between those two? Yes, definitely. I think, um, well, I think what I've read in scripture is that um, ultimately that God wants us to put our trust in him, right? And that, that in the garden, it was, an, it was Adam and Eve had the choice of whether or not to trust in God's love and goodness for them or to trust in their own wisdom and take that knowledge for themselves. And so really, I think fear is wonderful for discerning things or, you know, what dangers are out there. But I think when our fear overrides our trust in God, that's when I think God is like, mm, that's like, be care of, be careful of that. Like that's the warning. Um, because ultimately we can trust that God is good and God is for us. And when we start to not trust that it's taking um, wisdom and knowledge into our own, own hands. Um, mm. And yeah, and in scripture, I, I see, you know, Jesus going to the cross was, seemed afraid to me, <laughs> sweating blood and praying that the cup be taken from him. So um, yeah, I think there, that, that isn't something that God's saying, don't ever be afraid, but he's mm -hmm. saying, don't let your fears, in a sense, trump, you know, your trust in me. And, and that's the temptation. Mm, yeah, that's so good. I think for those who are there on Sunday and just, you know, I kind of shared about uh, some of the, the threat to my eyesight, possible blindness and all in front of man, there are a lot of a fear generating, like there's, you know, scared about, man, what does this mean for my future? Um, and I think it would have been a mistake to say, well, I'm not supposed to fear to shut that down versus being able to tap in and even in prayer to kind of go, well, God, here's the things that I'm feeling afraid of that I'm scared of being able to bring those to God. You know, it feels like the trust is not pretending like the fear isn't there. It's like, coming face to face with those things and, and bringing them to him. To Can I share my last analogy? Um, that I think the, the analogy that I love, the metaphor that I love is like fear is like battling a dragon hmm. and that dragons, you know, they live out in the unknown in like cold, dark caves. And so they really tap in, I think to our like psyche of like the unknown is scary and out there is scary. Um, and in like all the myths and different things, the way that you battle a dragon is you either flee, there's wisdom in fleeing, right? But um, so sometimes you have to know that this dragon is not worth fighting and that it would be foolish to fight it. And so there's wisdom in having that fear. 
But then there's other times when, you know, that dragon has taken something of value or it's holding a treasure that you need. And so you have to face that dragon if you want freedom or if you want that treasure that it's holding. And so I really think that's part of the discernment with fear is to know when to fight and when to flee and trying to discern the difference. That's great. That's really good. All right. Well, we're going to break into discussion, breakout rooms. And so Stephen in a second here is going to put, put those together. Uh, you'll be kind of randomly assigned to groups. We can talk, process. The question, uh, Stephen, I believe you're going to post this in the chat. Uh, but the question has to do with, um, uh, actually, Stephen, can you read it? I am not seeing it here. <laughs> I thought yeah. I had it. Uh... Stop me if these aren't the right ones. Um, but what were you taught about fear growing up? How did you feel you were supposed to deal with your fear? And what is your default response to fear today? Do you tend to feel overwhelmed or to push it aside? Cool. All right. So we'll go into breakout rooms for about five minutes and then we'll come back and on to anger and sadness. Uh, well, now we want to move to our next emotion, anger. We're trying to have space for anger and then hopefully sadness at the end. Uh, but anger, Tristan, man, there's been a lot of anger this year. I've you know, seen both like roommates who are stuck in the same you know, place together, apartment 24-7, and there's not the usual outlets of being out at school or out, at, out on the town, out at work as much because people are working from home more, uh, spouses in conflict with new rhythms, uh, dealing with parents with children where for many where school for a long time you know, was not in place for some still isn't. And so I'm curious, there's anger on kind of those personal levels. Then we can also maybe talk in a minute too about even just on societal levels. It feels like there's a lot of anger, there's cultural kind of polarization, hostility, division uh, at large, but it just seems like there's a lot of anger this year. <laughs> I'm curious if you could help us make sense of what is anger about? Like what is it, what is our body trying to tell us when we're angry and yeah, how, how can we wisely approach anger? Uh, well, one of the buckets that we thought would be helpful with anger is that um, just looking into anger, that it's, it could be a signal that your expectations are being unmet or thwarted. And as we've seen with this pandemic, I think all of our expectations have not been, not been met um, and over and over again, right? Like some of us expected this to last a couple of weeks. Some of us expected it to be a couple of months. Um, and so in this season, I think we're constantly coming up against unmet expectations. Um, so one of the metaphors that I think is helpful with anger is thinking of anger like fire. And with fire, it can be such a wonderful thing to um, give energy and life. Um, um, and that, um, yeah, when we use anger to heat things up, it can be really helpful or we can use it to refine something and to burn away. Like when you're doing, making gold, burn away the dross and, um, uncover the gold, a real treasure. Um, but I think what's so difficult with anger is that it can tend to give us more energy than we actually need. And so we talk about it being like an overenthusiastic helper that like overshoots. And so um, that fire, that energy that can give us um, energy to problem solve can also be energy that we can use to destroy. And so fire, as we all know, <clears throat> especially in the Northwest, um, 
fire can easily destroy things. It can easily spread and become huge. Um, and so with anger, we need to use it in the same way that we use fire carefully and with wisdom. Um, mm. so, yeah. yeah. If I could just say really quick, it reminds me of like James three, he talks about the tongue as being like a spark. He's like, you know, the same way that all it takes is a spark to burn down an entire forest. So your tongue can mm. just unleash immense damage in people around you and your community and your own life. Uh, and just that sense of like, yeah, the, the campfire is great. Uh, and it has a good constructive purpose at times, but it can easily get out of control and tear a lot of things down around you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. So learning how to manage that, a couple of strategies um, that I think are helpful is just first cooling down because energy tends to overshoot and have a lot of energy. It, I think it's wise to let that energy cool down. Um, so, you know, going on a walk, going on a run, writing things down that you wouldn't necessarily take action. So let's say if somebody offended you that you wouldn't right away <laughs> go respond. Um, I mean, there are times when we need to respond and that fight is there. So if somebody else is, if somebody's in danger, that anger is really great that you, that, that energy is there. Or let's say that um, someone is trying to pressure you to do something really mean or foolish, that anger can be there for you to actually just resist and say no. Um, but oftentimes we don't need to problem solve like right at that moment. And so the best strategy is to kind of let it cool down, um, but not getting confused that when you cool down, that that's the same thing as addressing the problem that triggered your anger. So, um, just being aware of that. And then um, the second strategy would be evaluating your thoughts. So in the psychological world, we talk about there's automatic thoughts. And so th these are the thoughts that you're not necessarily scheming and consciously coming up with. They're just automatic. Um, and so again, it kind of reflecting back to what, or referencing back to what we talked about before about um, thinking errors or lies um, that with anger, oftentimes our automatic thoughts um, reflect cognitive distortion, distortions or thinking errors or lies. And two examples of that would be mind reading. <laughs> so when I was first married, I would get frustrated um, when my husband wouldn't know what I needed and what I wanted. And so uh, I had the automatic expectation um, for him to do that, which was not helpful. Um, another thinking error, all or nothing thinking. And so that sounds like, you know, she never does X, Y, Z, or you always do X, Y, Z. Um, so um, yeah, I think. What what your thoughts might be that are, that are fueling the fire. And I think Josh, you had some. Yeah, that um, was great. I'm sorry, it was uh, getting a little choppy there. Uh, as a matter of fact, if yeah. people who are on video camera, someone told me last time that if, uh, if you kind of stop the video, not you, Tristan, we need to see you, but for other folks, if some folks can kind of turn off their camera, I think it helps the streaming if it starts getting a little uh, hung up like it was there for a minute so that'd be great 
Okay, excellent. Yeah, no, that was really helpful. And even as you were talking about cooling down, I loved how you mentioned too, like it, it can be important though to come back and address and deal with it. I found often with doing marital counseling that one big theme in marriages will be like, you're having an argument, having a fight and someone is getting really worked up. They're kind of even that energy, they're getting really worked up over something. And uh, one negative thing is to blow up and you know lose your cool. Uh, another negative thing that can be like, you storm out and you walk away and you kind of cool down, but you never actually talk about the thing again. And the person who's leaving the other person can feel like, oh, you don't care enough to kind of work this out with me as well, you know? And so I, I found often oh, a strategy yeah. that can work well is telling the person, we need to talk about this. We will talk about it. I just need some time to cool down, like articulating that and making a point to come back. Mm -hmm. But I like how you address both. Okay, mm -hmm. giving space to cool down. Also recognizing your anger is mm -hmm. highlighting there's an underlying issue there that it would be important to deal with in, in mm -hmm. eventually. Yeah. That, that's great. And I like to see the mind reading just Speaking of marriage. Um, yeah, for John and I, <laughs> one of the times, or one of the times that we found ourselves getting pretty angry at each other is driving. And um, so I've, you know, been in a lot of car accidents and uh, <laughs> my body remembers that. And so when John is driving, um, he's kind of known to be a distracted driver. And so when I, <laughs> yeah, you definitely don't want to have a conversation with John while driving in town. Um, but yeah, while we were driving, um, I would point out danger. And so I might say, oh, you know, that car is too close or different things. And then um, soon he would explode after I pointed out all these different dangers that, you know, stop telling me how to drive. And so at that point, I would be angry that he was angry. And then we'd get into a downward spiral of conflict. And so one of the things that um, has been really helpful for us is the tool of, it's called nonviolent communication. And it's a framework for helping you to identify um, what your underlying needs are. And um, oftentimes we confuse our needs with our strategy to meet our needs. And so in this particular situation, my strategy was to point out all the danger and um, that was not really meeting my need for safety, or at least I was trying to meet that need for safety. And so for John and I, when we had um, the conversation using nonviolent communication, we identified that my need was for safety and his need was for independence and peace. And so me pointing out all the danger was um, thwarting his expectation for independence and serenity. And so once we put our needs on the table, then we came up with a better strategy that we both felt good about, and which is John riding shotgun. And especially if I feel anxious, I'll drive. And so that's been really helpful. Um, and nonviolent communication is, um, the reason why it's called that, it's kind of a, a strange name for people. Um, it was developed by this man, Marshall Rosenberg, and he developed it in the 1960s during the civil rights um, era. And um, what, what was beautiful is that he'd use this to help people um, with their communication as he was helping desegregate communities in areas that had long been segregated. And so if you can imagine there's a lot of anger in those communities and expectations, different expectations. Um, so that's why it's called nonviolent communication, but it's also been 
rebranded or renamed to compassionate communication. And um, yeah, I just find it really helpful that to identify when you're angry, oftentimes it can reflect that you don't like someone's strategy to try to meet their need. And so if you can try to identify what the foundational needs are and nonviolent communication has like a list of them, um, you can come up with better strategies to meet those needs. That's great. That's really good. Well, so you talked about like when we're angry, we can go to mind reading, like we're, or we, you know, we just expect like the other person should be able to know what I'm thinking already when we have an extra communicate. You talked about like all or nothing thinking, like, oh, you always do this. You always do that when we get worked up like that. Um, but when you and I were talking to you earlier this week, another thing you mentioned, uh, we're talking about some of the societal conflicts right now too, and how when people are angry, they can tend to read into things a lot. So two humorous examples kind of here was one person, you know, from each side, we had one person who was like, and why you guys have all these All Lives Matter signs all over your church campus? And we're like, what are you talking about? We don't have any All Lives Matter. No, no, you guys have All Lives Matter signs pasted all around the, the church campus. We're like, can you show us one? Like, did we get tagged or what's going on? And so they went and showed it. And it was like our vision statement for like a decade or whatever is, you know, all of life is all for Jesus. <laughs> but because they were angry about whatever all this, either they were reading that into. And, and then on the other side, um, there was a sermon where someone had said like the, mentioned progressive sanctification, the idea that we don't turn holy overnight, you know, like it's this gradual process of growing in holiness progressively, not overnight. But someone was angry about that, writing my like, like, why are you saying like, if I'm becoming more holy, that I'll become more progressive ideologically, you know, so just kind of going, it, but what's struggling with societally right now with these conflicts, like it feels like when people are angry, they're often, you can say this, and people will be reading into it, thinking you're saying this, or you're saying this, and people will read into it, you're saying this. How does that feel like what's going on with us when we're angry that can kind of cause us to um yeah just maybe distort how we're hearing things and yeah. yes we can become myopic for sure um i do think that one of the ways that people frame it is that you know when you're angry is that you go into your survival brain so your primitive part of your brain the part of your brain that's like first to develop which is really wonderful instinctual like threat is happening and so again like i'm gonna respond and react before i'm even really quite sure what the threat is and so like with that bear analogy it's like well it kind of looks like a bear so you know i need to prepare and then later you realize oh it's actually a shadow um and so i do think that um really evaluating our perspective our thoughts um, is really important when it comes to anger. And so anger is a wonderful opportunity to, um, it's like a mirror, to reflect back and see, you know, what am I thinking right now? Or what am I expecting? And when you start to do that, you're starting to engage your prefrontal cortex. And this is the part of your brain that they call like the watchtower. And so it's kind of like, looking down on your survival part of your brain and saying, you know, what's, what's going on down there? Why, why are you responding in that way? And so having that curiosity, I think, takes you into that part of your brain that is the part of our brain that helps us to make more wise decisions in the sense of looking long-term instead of what's just immediate right now. And so we do need our survival brain to help us with present threat right now. Um, but we also need to engage in the part of our brain that helps us to think, you know, maybe that wasn't, that wasn't as threatening as I thought it was. Um, so, yeah. 
great. So uh, kind of landing the plane here on anger before we move to sadness. Yeah, any, you mentioned, you know, uh, with, with fear, you mentioned like journaling and certain types of counseling that you find really beneficial. Uh, with anger, you kind of mentioned cooling down. I don't know, do you have any kind of summary on, hey, uh, might, you might try these practices or things to kind of help with navigating anger? Yeah, yeah, I think, um, yeah, definitely cool down. That is great. And doing something physically active is super helpful to that cool down process. So yeah, going on a run, going on a walk, writing things out, um, and then evaluating your thoughts and looking like evaluating what's going on in you. Um, and then I think using compassionate communication is really helpful because let's say that you identify that it's not just a, you know, a thinking air that you have, but it's just that you have people that have two different needs. And so compassionate communication is helpful for navigating that. Um, and then I think just as far as um, spiritually, as I think realizing that um, we don't meet God's expectations, it's really easy in anger to, feel, to get self-righteous. And how Romans says there's no one righteous, not even one. Mm. And um, I think it's helpful to just realize that God, we don't meet God's expectations, but God is, he describes himself as slow to anger. Mm. Yeah, he's like compassionate and full of love. And um, so I think, I think when we reflect on how God deals with us, with our, with not meeting, you know, God's expectations, it can help us to be slow to anger and patient as we deal with other people. That's really good. Yeah, it makes me think of when Jesus says, you know, who you've been, who, if you've been forgiven much, love much, like people who recognize how much they've been forgiven, love much, we realize how much God has, I don't know, mm -hmm. if I'm trying to muster up forgiveness or dealing with my anger, one of the best things for me is to step back and realize how much I've been the, the righteous, object of righteous anger that, that has been overcome in God's forgiveness. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Well, let's also talk about sadness. Uh, I know this is this year uh, has been a year with filled with a lot of sadness for me. I've talked with a number of folks who have lost loved ones. I think one of the things that's been so tragic has been uh, at times losing you know loved ones and being unable to be with them in their final moments, like in the hospital, just because of you know COVID restrictions and all. Uh, others have expressed being extremely lonely. I know that we've seen spikes nationally with things like suicide and depression and, and all that. I think a lot of folks have felt lonely, isolated in their apartments, maybe from friends or other people. And so it seems like this season has been marked a lot. 2020 as a whole, you know, as a year has been marked a lot by loneliness, by isolation, by depression, by anxiety, by spikes in suicide, by loss of, of loved ones for many. And man, if you could help us make sense of our sadness, like when we're experiencing sadness, what's going on? Like God's designed our bodies that way for a reason. What, why has he given us sadness? What's that emotion trying to tell us and how can we approach that well? Mm -hmm. uh, sadness, I think, um, is like a, a wise sage um, trying to communicate us that to us that we have pain that we're dealing with. And so it can be a signal that something needs to heal, that, um, that we either experience, you know, either physical pain or emotional pain, relational pain, um, or it's just loss. Um, 
So, <clears throat> yeah, I think um, that during this season right now, a lot of us are experiencing different levels of pain from different things and, and a lot of loss. Um, loss of certainty, loss of jobs, um, loss of connections. And so sadness is a way that our body gets us to slow down. So I think that's one reason why a lot of people don't like sadness is that, you know, with anger and with fear, it really revs us up. Um, so um, a lot of people feel more comfortable with, with that adrenaline and cortisol pumping through our body. But with sadness, we really feel more tired and um, we tend to want to sleep more and it just slows us down. And so um, I think it's our body's way to say, hey, there's something here that you need to pay attention to. And not just to give time, because I think sometimes people, you know, like to use the, um, what do you call it? Like uh, um, the saying that, you know, time heals all wounds, which is not true. Um, it isn't just time, but we also need to give attention um, to things. And so, you know, with, with pain in our lives, um, sadness is an opportunity to um, pay attention to that and really acknowledge what's going on in our life. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. Are there, um, similar to the other ones, are there, are there, well, when you think, you know, someone who loves Jesus and how do you tend to think about God and his, I don't know, posture towards you? How, how does our experience of life with Christ maybe impact our experience of sadness? Like some of the resources that we have as a follower of Jesus and we're in a really hard time, a dark time, a sad time. Are there any, whether truths or things about who God is that you have found helpful or resourceful that may be a unique power that we have in the gospel for seasons of sadness? Mm -hmm, definitely. Um, I think what I have noticed uh, walking people through experiences of pain and loss is that one thing that can make the pain and loss so much greater is increase our suffering is when we feel alone. And I think the beauty of what God gives us is that we are never alone in our pain and that we have a God that can empathize with our pain. And so, um, you know, I just love, you know, Hebrews 13, five, um, God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And, and then Jesus, you know, described as um, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, uh, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And so I think that's the beauty of, I think, um, having a God who can empathize and be with us. Um, as well as I think sadness is really an opportunity to, for us to draw closer to other people that for me, I find um, there's something bonding about someone being able to share the vulnerability of sadness with me and, um, and to give me the honor of, of seeing what's really going on in, inside and, 
allowing me to also um, walk with them and carrying that pain. I think um, sadness is an opportunity for deeper, deepening our intimacy in our relationships and deepening our intimacy with God. That's great. Well, uh, one, well, I was going to say, I think kind of any practices or things, but it sounds like one thing you already kind of mentioned, it feels like, yeah, community, like being with others and opening yourself up to walk with others in that as well as prayer and life with God. Hey, it sounds like you've already answered it, but if there's anything else you want to say there too, that's great. Yeah. Um, well, I think, uh, sadness and shame are similar in that they're both feelings that we want to hide. Um, and yet the best way to deal with shame and sadness is sharing those feelings with other people. So I think just being aware that that's just a natural tendency for people to not want to share sadness and not wanting to share shame is is helpful to realize. Um, I I just have this one quote by this psychologist that I really like. Um, She's, uh, her name is Mary Lamia, and she says, sadness can help you to remember and accept reality, to achieve insight that can realign your goals to alert you to be cautious before making decisions and create opportunity for you to observe yourself. So I think when we start to think of sadness, not just as a hindrance to our life, but as an opportunity um, to deepen, you know, our wisdom, to deepen our relationships, um, it it really could be a gift. Hmm. Powerful. Yeah. It strikes me. I thought you were, I remember seeing a, Lars and the Real Girl, if you ever saw it back in the day, yes. but the scene. I, I, mean, you didn't mention this, but I had thought, I think you mentioned this in something I heard you talking about. I had seen that years ago and thought too, there's just a scene where it's the mannequin and she dies, but for him, it feels like this real thing, but it's not really. But there's a scene where like all of the kind of elderly people in the community, like all just start showing up at his house and coming in with uh, like casseroles and whatever else. And they just start sitting here and he's just kind of like, what are you all doing here? And like, we, we came to sit. And the, the idea being back in the day, like if you lost someone you loved or, you know, grief, people would come over and today we feel like, oh, we have to have an answer. We have to be able to fix it or whatever. And but no, it's like, dude, you're sad, but we're going to not let you be alone. We're going to be with you in it. And just the power of being with, even without trying to fix it or have the answers, but just not letting, like, like shame or sense that they can have a tendency to isolate you. Like, no, we're not going to let you be isolated. Um, yeah. Yes, I love that you brought up that movie yeah. uh, because that movie is a great movie of sh- showing the um, the problem with unprocessed trauma because he, you know, experienced his mom's death um, when he was an infant, and so um, he ended up like pretty much recreating that scenario. And through that process, he's um, getting the help and intervention that he needed that he didn't get when he was young. Um, and so it's, yeah, such a beautiful act of that community in a sense, they're being the mother that he lost and, mm-hmm. and the father that he also lost because I believe his dad was like, I think focused on his own grief. And so, yeah, it's such an amazing movie. And um, I think it's so great too, because it's so easy because he like falls in love with like a sex doll um, and thinks it's a real person that you could, you know, become judgmental, like what's wrong with him um, instead of just 
really entering into this is his reality and this is his pain and this is what he needs to do to heal. Yeah. And understanding, man, that even if there's this maybe unhealthy thing coming out, like there's a root it's coming from that's real, like an, yeah, like an untapped a need or a trauma or a pain that, that that's coming out of. That's super helpful. All right. Well, uh, I can be long winded. I'm sorry. I, I, I was bringing other questions and all. I want to make sure we have enough time for questions. So really quick, if you have a question that you'd love for Trista to answer, uh, shoot it to me in the chat function. It should just come to me privately and then I'll be able to see it and go over those. Uh, uh, Steven uh, is going to break us out into breakout rooms one more time. And the question this time, um, Steven, can you read that again? Yeah, actually, right before I do that, I've had multiple people ask, what's the name of that movie again? Um, Lars and the Real Girl. Give it to me one more time. Lars, L-A-R-S, and the Real Girl. Hopefully you guys all caught that. Lars and the Real Girl. There you go. Ryan Gosling is the main character, or main actor. Oh, okay, Here, and here's the breakout question, part two. The last time you got angry, can you identify an unmet expectation your anger and any thinking errors or lies in the moment or another question if you want to do this one instead is which emotion has been most for you this year name one insight from tonight you found most helpful so those awesome. questions are in the group you can find them. let's go into breakout rooms for five minutes and then shoot me any questions if you have one that you want to hear Tristan talk more about well to wrap us up, uh, hopefully a big takeaway for the night, you know, if you want to walk away with something big, you know, God designed our bodies with wisdom and intentionality and purpose and our emotions are there for a reason. They're signals are kind of letting us know what's going on under the hood, so to speak, and it's worth paying attention to them. It's kind of stewarding the gift of God that he's given us in our bodies, and our emotions. Thank you, Tristan, so much for being a part with us tonight and helping guide us in this conversation. We're really grateful for you. So, yay. Thanks. Thanks a ton for being here. Sweet. And anyone who wants to hang out in the chat afterwards here, feel free. And otherwise, we are officially. Jim, anything? I think we're done, though, right? We're good. I, I think we're good if anyone wants to hang out. Can I just. Uh... Um, can I just pray for us in this time oh, yeah. and wrap us up? Yeah. All holy and such, man. So, yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> um, Father, thank you for Tristan. Thank you for the good work that she's done um, in both her writing and in her work. And we pray that you would bless the work of her hands, that you would use her as your instrument of healing. And God, we also pray that the same thing for all of us um, here, that we would see one another uh, and you would show us how to show up for one another, especially uh, in times like this. Um, and God, we pray that you would give us uh, just that through, through these emotions, uh, that you would help us to... Um, to see what you're doing, to see the realities of this world, uh, to catch a glimpse of you, Jesus. And we pray that uh, with wisdom, we would reflect your image um, as we engage these things. God, we pray uh, for um, this evening and this, and this week that you would carve out space uh, for each of us to encounter you and to bring uh, the, the realness of where we're at 
to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.